Thank you, orchestra and worship band, for leading us this morning. It is always a privilege to get to address you. I would say from this pulpit, but I guess I don't have one. So from up here, uh, if you don't know me, my name is Evan. I'm a college pastor, and uh, I get to speak when Bobby's out. This morning, I, I suspect most of you can probably guess where we're headed. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. We all love... A self-made man, someone who has nothing but through pure grit and determination, hard work and sacrifice, rise above their squalor and make something of themselves that no one thought possible. The only problem is there's never been one. There's never been anybody who has done it all themselves. There's never been anybody who has picked themselves up by their bootstraps. But the stories are better that way. We love a good rags to riches. We just get a little disingenuous when we imagine that journey happened without assistance. This morning I do want to talk to you about a a remarkable rags to riches story. I don't know that it would make a good movie. In fact, there would be lots of different movies to tell this story, but I would argue the greatest rags-to-riches story is you. Assuming that is you today confess Christ as Lord, then according to Scripture, you once were dead and now you're not. And that's pretty incredible. I'm not going to argue you did it with no help. I'm going to argue you did it offering no help yourself. But still a pretty good story. Once dead, now alive. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath. Like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy and out of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you've been saved through faith, that it's not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one can boast. For we are what He has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Paul does something interesting here. He's, he's talking to the church at Ephesus. This is probably about 30 years after Jesus has died, and 
And they're in a, a bit of a struggle, like many churches were about this time, of uh, uh, where do the Gentiles land? Are they equal to the Jewish believers? Are they less than? Or are they less than until they become Jewish themselves and they're equal to? And, and what does that look like in the church body? And how do they relate? And Paul says, you, talking to the Gentiles. But then in verse 3, he says, we. Lest anybody hearing him, including, including uh, the Jewish believers, think for a second that they were ever in a different circumstance than the Gentiles. I want you to hear this morning, regardless of how long you lived before you came to faith, and regardless of how long you've lived since you came to faith, we were all in the same boat. We were all in the same condition, and it wasn't that you were bad and needed to be made good. It wasn't that you were dirty and needed a little cleaning up. It wasn't that you were inadequate and needed a few more resources to become adequate. You were, according to Scripture, dead, and you needed to be made alive. When I was in college, testimonies became really popular. Cardboard testimonies, I am second, all these different things, and it, it almost became a, a race to see who could have the worst story pre-Jesus. Who could have the ugliest background before Jesus, as if that made them worse than those of you like me who were baptized when we were eight. I was not always a good kid, though doing student ministry, and I bought into the testimony craze, and so we would have students give their testimonies, and I cannot tell you how many began that way. I was always a good kid. We weren't. We were all in the same boat, and that boat was not just a little messed up, but completely dead. We were all in the same boat, and we all got there the same way. He says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sin, pursuing the things of this world. You are not just a victim of your circumstances. We choose to sin. In this fallen, broken world that we are born into, we are found guilty not because of anything other than our choices to pursue things other than what God has laid out for us. I think that's an incredibly important foundation because if we don't all agree with that, if you think that any part of your salvation was warranted because you weren't that bad before Jesus, or that you earned any bit of your salvation because of what you did. That any bit of God's grace was merited on your behalf. What you will find is no one else will merit that grace. Unfortunately, we church folks can be some of the most graceless people on the planet. And I think it, it only can happen when we start to think we deserved it. The people that understand that they were truly 
hopeless before Jesus and now can anchor their hope in Jesus and Jesus alone ought to find it easier than anybody to show grace to those who come across our paths. We were all in the same boat. That's the bad news. The good news, though, but God, being rich in mercy, loving us with the love which He loved us with, That's called Paul tripping over his words trying to explain how good God is for what God did. Gave us Jesus. Guys, the gospel is is backwards in many ways, but bear with me for a second while I walk through a pretty backwards thing that I think we might misunderstand. The God of the universe, creator of all things seen and unseen, lived on this earth in flesh in Jesus lived a perfect life, died a criminal's death, rose again literally and is coming back literally, all so that you and I can live in perfect relationship with God. But here's where I think we we misunderstand. This is not an opportunity for you and I to bypass death. I think it's been sold that way for a long time because it's easier to get people to come down the aisle if you can scare them out of the alternative. And so when I was a child, I was told about a really scary place that I did not want to go to. And that if I didn't pray a prayer and get dunked before I died, then I would go to that place and that was scary. And all that's biblically true. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus' offer for life is not a way for you and I to bypass death, but in the way that God did it, it is our way through death into true life. Through the death of Jesus, we are called to die to self, and through that death are offered life in abundance here on earth. Through the death of Jesus... We are offered to die to self, according to Romans 12, that is our true spiritual act of worship. We then are offered actual life moving forward. It was really popular when I was younger to to scare people a little more in the invitation. It it actually burdens me how many people my age that were at youth camp and on Thursday night got really scared into praying a prayer but never met Jesus and think they're safe. But it was popular to say things like, if you died tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? That's a scary question when you're in middle school, especially Thursday night at youth camp, you're tired. It's a scarier question when you're tired. And yet that's not the question that you and I ought to be contemplating over and over again. That has no confidence in the the efficacy of the cross if I'm constantly asking myself over and over again, am I still saying, am I sure? Nobody would regularly, I hope, go to their spouse and go, 
Are you sure? Like, are we still married? Or is this still a thing, right? We, we understand. And yet with our faith, we act like that's the way we ought to approach it when the, the real question we ought to be living is, is what if we actually understood what living was? And that somehow it's not bypassing death, but through death that we're able to actually live. Through Jesus' literal death and literal resurrection and literal return, we are given the opportunity to actually live here and now. Why on earth would he do that? Well, first of all, it says so that he can show us how extravagantly kind he is. If we understand anything in the West, it's extravagance. And that doesn't mean you had anything extravagant. I grew up poor, uh, and, and uh, I remember certainly uh, looking up towards extravagance. Right now, we all had different definitions of that. For me, it was the polo boots with the strap on top that all my friends had, and I knew for a fact we couldn't afford for you, it may have been something different, but we all understand extravagance. And, and for most of us, we would, we would like for other people to see how extravagant we are, right? It's the only way Lubbock, Texas has a golf course. It costs $50,000 to get into. And somebody told me this morning, 232 members at Red Feather. If it's you, I'm sorry. It's a little embarrassing. But boy, we love to show our extravagance, show how big of a house we can't afford or, or show what, how nice of a car we can go indebted to, to drive. Right? We want people to see. Keep it up with the Joneses is hard, particularly when the Joneses don't exist. It's some imaginary person that always will have more than you. We get extravagance, but how does God show his extravagance? The, the God of the universe, creator of all things seen and unseen, that owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that could show his extravagance more beautifully than the richest person in this room, says, I'll do it with kindness. I'll do it with love, with sacrifice. A couple weeks ago, Ken sent me a, a link of a friend of his. It's a pastor in Dallas. It's uh, resigning from his church and going to Truett where I went to seminary and, and filling a, a new role. And Kim was showing me this, this new role and so I checked out this friend of mine going to Truett. Anytime I go to a church website, I, I naturally start to wander through the pages and see what they're doing and see. And, and I got to their beliefs page and they have these six core tenets. And, and one of them was that we want to be hilariously generous. That's not an adjective I'd used for generous before. Right? That, that hadn't been a way that I described generosity and I thought about it and that's a pretty good description of God's generosity because every single thing that God does in Scripture is absurd by any metric. He is hilariously generous with you and I. That doesn't mean that you'll have money. It doesn't mean that you'll be broke. It doesn't mean that you'll be healthy. It doesn't mean you'll be riddled with health problems. It doesn't mean you'll have a life of ease. It doesn't mean your life will be terrible. But 
What it means is the God of the universe has been extravagantly kind to every single one of us in this room, even those who have not yet come to know him. And he did it on the cross. That's a, that's a mind-blowing way to think about the cross for me. That at least one of the purposes of my salvation is for God to show off how kind He is. Maybe, just maybe, God would like you and I to be equally kind. Extravagantly kind with the way that we love those around us. The second, so that, so that you and I can't boast. Listen, I, I am, at a default, arrogant. Not something I'm proud of, something I like to guard against, but, but I, I know my, my faults. Every year, Howard Payne elects people to the Sports Hall of Fame, and every year I think, just maybe this year, I'll get a, I'll get a call. Now, I want you to know I was not that good. I was the second best pitcher on the worst team in Howard Payne's uh, recent history. But a little part of me goes, well, maybe, maybe this year they'll give me a call. Or distinguished young graduate, which I think I've now aged out of, but I think just maybe they'll call me this year. It's why. I continue to pray, and you'll hear it today, and you've heard it before, and I do it silently, and you don't get to hear it. It's why I continue to pray, God, do something I can't take credit for, because God knows I will. If there is an opportunity for me to take a, a little uh, clap on the back, I'm, I'm going to do it. It's part of our nature. They studied something called attribution error, and they used pole vaulters in the Olympics, and, and since have spread this study, but it became pretty clear. We are uniquely gifted at attributing failure to outside circumstances and uh, attributing success to inward strength. When things go well, it's because I worked hard. When things go poorly, it's because there was wind that day. Right? We are really good at taking credit for things we have no business taking credit for. How on earth could a dead person take credit for being revived? When I was in high school, my uncle was brain dead for 17 minutes. The doctor said, if he comes back, it will be, it'll be a vegetable. My uncle currently, unfortunately, is probably playing golf right now. Right? He, he, he didn't see it as the miracle that we hoped he would, but you know what he doesn't do? He's never bragged about it. Never once has he thought, that's pretty impressive what I did. He recognizes, even more so because the doctors told him, we don't even know how this happened, but he recognizes that this is something outside of the norm and certainly outside of his skill set. He says, 
You can't brag about this. And Paul doesn't say it here, but I think it's worthwhile because Paul says it elsewhere. You also can't gatekeep it. When you've been given a gift you didn't deserve, it is shameful to tell other people they don't deserve it so they're not getting it. It's rather embarrassing, actually. It's the parable of the vineyards that Jesus gave. When he got workers at six, got workers at nine, and got workers at noon, and got workers at three, and then rung the bell at four and paid them all the same. And those that worked at six said, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. We've been here all day. They got here an hour ago. And the vineyard owner says, it's my money. We agreed on your payment. What do you care what they get? Some of us go, oh, hey, I've been doing this my whole life. They've got to straighten up a little bit before they get in. They've got to learn to dress when they come to church before they get in. They've got to learn to, to talk the way that I talk before they get in. And it is embarrassing, guys. When it's something you didn't earn to then tell other people that they've got to earn it. First of all, it's so that he can show you how hilariously generous he is. But secondly, it's so that you can't boast. Thirdly, it's because he's got work to do. And until God chooses another method of working, the primary conduit of God's love to this world is a local church. You and I. So I spoke to my people, the braggadocious people. Now I want to speak to the, the humble people. They go, well, I would do it, but... I can't speak in front of people. I, I, I'm just, I don't know I'm going to be able to answer all the questions. I've been doing this very long. Or, right? I, I, I don't know, I don't know that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to do the things that he's called me to do. Can I tell you what you're doing? The braggadocious people, uh, what, what we are doing when we're not careful is we are questioning the necessity of the cross. That I, I, I did some of this myself. I earned it. I, I, I did this. The falsely humble people are questioning the efficacy of the cross. Neither is a good route to take. To say, I don't need the cross, which is what we are effectively saying when we say that we earned a little bit of our salvation, is just the other side of the coin to saying the cross was not powerful enough to equip me to now live on mission where my feet are. Two sides of the same coin. One looks a lot more spiritual. Well, actually, I'm not sure. Both of them get a lot of hype time at pulpits. But it feels a little more spiritual to be, whoa, I can't do that, little old me. When I get older, it's, I, I'm too young. I'm in middle school, I'm in high school. When I get older, that was me in high school. I was convinced life got easier after college. My dad didn't get saved until in his 20s, godliest man I know, so I'll just start then. I got heaven, but I'll just, start, I'll just do stuff when I get a little older. Or maybe I'm too old. I did that stuff when I was younger. I'm, I'm traveling now. It's me time. I worked for 45 years, and it's time to get some of that back. Regardless of what excuse you've made, what you are telling Jesus is, I don't actually have any interest in living a life pleasing to you. I just really didn't want to go to hell, and heaven sounded pretty cool. 
I'm not actually interested in you. I just, I just wanted your stuff. So many of us have been lied to and been convinced that we can bypass death by asking God to let us live and now we just have to grin and bear it through this life until we die and then we can actually live with Jesus. That is as wrong as you can get in Scripture. But many of us have been convinced that that's our trajectory. We got out of death at our prayer. Now we just got to get through life till we die. And then we get to live. When you lay it out like that, I, I hope it makes no sense to you. And yet for many people occupying pews across our country today, that is their mentality. Jesus died a death that you couldn't so that you could live a life that you couldn't and he didn't intend for you to wait till heaven to start. There's much to be done here. There's much to be done now. Not when you're older. Not back when you were younger. Not when you get things settled at work. Not once you get the career that you want. Not once you're in the geographic location that you'd like to be in. Here and now, there's work to be done. It's been laid out from beforehand for you. Now, I, I don't think, I've been wrong before, I'll be wrong again. I never knew I was wrong or I wouldn't have been wrong, but I think... This doesn't mean that there's this, this little tiny narrow road that we have to walk and, and, and if we make one choice down the road, picking college or picking a career or, or picking a, 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 to take a job or to not take a job and all these things and we go, well, I, I don't want to know which is the will of God. Do I, do I go to this school or this school? And, and we just cripple ourselves with anxiety. I don't think that's Paul's point here. Where your great desire, and I want to be very clear here, the desire that's been given to you by God, not our sinful nature, where your great desire and the world's great need meets is the will of God for you. That deep yearning that God has given you, your job is to go, okay, now God, how can I use that thing to further your glory? How can I best use this thing that you have gifted me with to point people to you? And we spend our lives doing that. And when we realize, I started pointing people to me. Or I become apathetic with the things that God has called me to do. We trust that the scripture is true when it says when we're faithless, God remains faithful because he can't disown himself. We go, okay, God, I'm back on it. Show me how to use the things that you've gifted me with, the burdens that you've given me, the, the, the deep desires that you've given me, and show me how to use those to point more people to your goodness. And we actually do it the same way that Jesus did it. We do it through self-sacrifice. We do it through extravagant kindness. We do it through deep love. 
And we do it for the glory of God. We were all in the same boat. But God, being rich in mercy, extravagantly kind, loved us through death so that we can live, so that He can show how good He is, so that we can't boast, and so that we can truly be on mission where our feet are. Let's pray. God, you're good, and you're for our good. I'm so incredibly grateful for that fact. Forgive us when we take it for granted. God, I pray that you would do something in the lives of the people in this room as we leave this room that, that we can't take credit for. God, I pray that you would do something in their, in their hearts, in their homes, in their workplaces, on their campuses, in this community. And our only explanation would simply be God did that. In your name I pray. Amen.